If you have a Bible with you today, would you turn it to uh, the book of Romans, Romans chapter 3. Be in there for just a minute, Romans chapter 3, and then we're going to switch over to Romans chapter 4. While you're finding your way there, I have a, a little detail for you, an update on the building uh, fund and where things are at. You know, we launched that last week. If you're new to New Hope, we're getting ready to build a new building, and um, we launched the building campaign last week, and people got pledge cards like this. And so you see the slide on the screen to give you an update, uh, just an amazing uh, start. We're already at uh, roughly $2.1 million in just a week. So how amazing is that, right? Okay, you guys, like no golf claps here. That's a big deal, right? Okay, all right. <laughs> you should be... That's, a, that's just as of Friday, um, Gene gave the numbers, and next week you're going to get another update, and we're going to continue to put slides on the screen so you can be updated, but at this point, um, as of Friday, 86 families had, or individuals had turned in commitment cards, and so Gene put a, a tally together based on those commitment cards that have been turned in. If you personally haven't been able to do that yet, if you intended to do, there's extra commitment cards in the back, and if you want to slide those in the offering box, you can today. If um, you forgot to do that or maybe just haven't had a chance... A lot of people are using the month of December to do that. Well, I'd love to step over into Romans 3 with you and, and pray with you before we do that. Would you join me in prayer? Father, I thank you for what we're uh, seeing happen here at New Hope and the way that you're working through sending people out to foreign nations to spread your word and raising up a body of disciples who are individuals trained in your word who can speak intelligently about the things of God and, and can speak with hope and with joy. We do that because you've made commitments to us in your word. And so we look at it now, Father, and we ask that you would guide us and you would teach us. And so we invite the power of the Holy Spirit, the teaching of the Holy Spirit, to be our guide, to be our shepherd as we look at your word, that you would use it to speak directly into our life. So here's what I ask for, Father. I know that many of us have thoughts on our minds right now. We're distracted with things that are going on in our world. Father, would you focus us? Bring us fully present into this moment so the things that you want to remind us of, the things that you want to teach us, we're, the, we're just very aware of that. Use your word that way this morning, God. We ask that in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So let me put a verse on the screen for you. And, and, and this comes from the book of Job, and, and it's an incredibly important question. In speaking of mankind in general, this comes from Job chapter 4. It says this, can mankind be just before God? Great question. And, and then he focuses it even further down and begins talking about an individual. Can a man be pure before his maker? Now, you'd think if anybody could take a position in which they were pure before their maker, it'd be like the individuals in the Bible, right? Like a person like Job or, or Isaiah or, or what about Moses or Abraham? You'd think if anybody would say, wow, they're good with God, it'd be a person like the saint of the Bible. Can you imagine if you opened up the Bible and found your name in the Bible? What if I said to you this morning, how about if we turn with me to the book of Scott, right? Or, or turn with me to the book of Rick. Or let's go to the book of Katie. Wouldn't that be cool to see your name in the Bible? It, it'd cause you to say, like, I'm, I'm totally in with God. I'm good with God. Yet what about the individuals themselves that we find in the Bible? What did they think of their position before God? Well, let's start with Abraham. Abraham, we consider him the father of faith. Look at what he said about it. He said, he said I'm, I'm dirt before God. He said it this way. Abraham replied, now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust. Well, what about Job? We just talked about him. God said there's nobody like Job on planet earth. 
He's an upright man, righteous individual. No one else, when you open up the book of Job, you find God speaking that way about Job. But look what Job said. He is not a man as I am that I may answer him, that we may go to court together. Why did he say that? Because he was going through some hard times. And even in the midst of his really, really hard times, he abhorred the thought of trying to justify himself before God. Well, let's go forward. What about King David? We're told in the Bible that David is a man after God's own heart. God looked at David and said, he chases after me. But what did David say about his standing before God? He said it this way, Psalm 143, 2, do not enter into judgment with your servant. He's speaking to God. For in your sight, no man living is righteous. What about Solomon? King Solomon is David's son. Wisest dude on all the planet. Bible says he's the smartest one to have ever lived. Look at what he says. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth. Ecclesiastes 7.20. Okay. Let's step it up a notch. What about Isaiah? Isaiah is the prophet of God, chosen by God. He is unique among all people on earth because he actually got to stand in the throne room of God. God caught him up into heaven and showed him things that nobody had ever seen. He said, I stood before God and I heard things and I saw the seraphim fly and I saw the glowing of the bodies and I heard them say, holy, holy, holy. And the antiphonal ring was them echoing back, saying, holy, 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 other angels echoing. Isaiah said, when I heard that, something happened. You see it in this verse on the screen. The foundation of the thresholds of heaven, they trembled like an earthquake. The foundations of the heaven trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips. Even the guy who stands in God's presence says, I'm not all that. That's Old Testament. What about New Testament? We're going to look at the book of Romans. Paul wrote much of the New Testament, including the book of Romans. Yet he calls himself what church? The chief of sinners. He said, no man is righteous before God, even if your name is in the Bible. What's going on with these guys? Did they have a bad self-image? Or did they just have good perspective? Did they understand who they are? When you and I are confronted by the majesty and the power and the justice of the living God, we cannot help but see the works that we do as completely worthless. Today, if you could step into eternity, even for a moment, you would hear Isaiah and Job and Daniel and Abraham and David and Solomon with one continual theme on their lips. They would all be saying the same thing. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. Not worthy is Paul. Not worthy is Isaiah. Not worthy is Job. But worthy is the Lamb. Why? Because they know what you have discovered. Many of you have discovered this. It is only through faith in Jesus Christ that you can be made righteous. Amen, church? It's only through Jesus. That's why they say, worthy is the Lamb. Now, all the way through Romans chapter 3, and we saw it in chapter 2 and in chapter 1, Paul has this constant theme. He's been talking about it only requires faith. Faith and faith alone. It's not by works. It requires faith in Jesus. And when he keeps saying that, he anticipates there's an argument. There's going to be pushback from people. 
So in chapter 3, verse 31, he puts the question right out there, anticipating the argument. You see the verse on the screen. Maybe you have your Bible open, but this is what he says. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. All through Romans, all through our 19 weeks of study, he's been saying, all that's required of you is faith. All that's asked of you is faith. And that seems to imply something. It seems to imply that everything that's written in the Old Testament, the law, has no purpose. It seems to imply the law is useless. And he's anticipating somebody arguing, saying, well, Paul, the law is useless. I've heard people say that to me. I've heard individuals say, I don't bother reading the Old Testament. I mean, it's full of the law. Why would I bother with that? The law is not useless. Paul's response is, verse 31, may it never be. No, a thousand times no. See, the cross of Jesus that you cling to, if you call yourself a Christ follower, the cross that you belong to, that cross does not nullify. Paul says, on the contrary, it establishes the law. Two Greek words in your notes this morning, and the first one is this word establish. You'll see it on the screen as well. It's this word histame. And it not only means to make something firm that, 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 that it stands and that you abide in it, but it also means to raise it up like a billboard, like put it on display. So that should cause you to ask a question. How in the world does my faith in Jesus, how does that make something that's as ancient as Moses, how does it make it even greater? Well, remember, Jesus said, I've come to fulfill the law, didn't he? He said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill the law. Matthew 5, 17. This is the way he said it. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Now, what does that mean? Now, let's remember the reason the law was given. And we're not just talking about the Ten Commandments. We're talking about God's righteous standard. So the reason the law was given was to show God's righteous standard, to put it on display, and then to demonstrate that those standards are impossible for you and I to reach on our own, in our own capacity. So here's what the law actually does do. The law actually proves you cannot earn your way to God. We talked about this last week that the great lie that our society has bought into is that you can do enough good things to make God like you. If you just send enough missionaries to Costa Rica, if you just do enough work down at the rescue mission, maybe if you just do enough kind things, then God will like you and you'll be good with God. That's the lie that our society has bought into, that you can earn your way to God, but the law actually proves you cannot earn your way to God because it establishes what God's standard looks like and it is impossible to meet. So in your notes, you're going to find three things that I listed this morning that the cross actually shows that the law does do and how it establishes it. I want to put them on the screen for you as well, but here, let me give you the, the statement first. The cross establishes, number one, the law by paying our penalty of death. Now, what does that mean? This might be confusing to you, especially if you're new to church, so let me help you to understand that. God's righteous standard, His law, demands a penalty if the standard is not met. If the standard is not met, the penalty is death. So God gave the sacrificial system. In the Old Testament, when you read it and you look at the laws, when people fell short of meeting God's righteous standard, there was a death penalty involved. So God provided that there could be animals sacrificed on behalf of the people because there had to be a shedding of blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. So Jesus comes on the scene 
And people are accusing him of trying to do away with all of that. And Jesus says, don't think I've come to abolish that. I've come to fulfill that. What's he talking about there? He says, I'm not going to do away with it. I'm going to live in such a way that my life is so sinless, my life on earth is so perfect that I can become the perfect sacrifice. So he's not just talking about his sinless life on earth. He's talking about his death, which was the perfect death. So the cross establishes the law by paying the penalty of death. Somebody had to pay it. God can't just wink at sin. There had to be a price paid. And there's number two. The cross establishes the law by driving mankind to faith. Scripture says this specifically. I want you to see it on the screen. Galatians 3.24. The law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. And here's number three. The cross establishes the law by fulfilling the law in us. Did you know that? That the law, the thing that you might think of as archaic and old and really outdated, that God actually says, this is fulfilled in you if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Look with me at the verse on the screen, Romans 8, 3, it says this, for what the law could not do, because it's working through you and I, right? We're flesh. Well, what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, believers. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the law is fulfilled in you. Now, John MacArthur said it much more complete than I. I've taken several minutes to get to this point, but I want you to see his quote. This is the way he summed it up. He said, as far as, the salvation, as far as salvation is concerned, the gospel does not replace the law because the law was never a means of salvation. It's pretty good, all right? So let's take it one step further. If this standard of God that he presented, if this righteous, holy standard is absolutely impossible for you and I to meet, how much harder is it when Jesus comes on the scene and he says, you know that, that thing that you're familiar with, those righteous standards, that isn't even the half of it. He said, there's a higher standard than that because Jesus said, you've heard it say, do not commit adultery. He says, I tell you, if you've even looked upon a woman with lust in your eyes, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. That's a higher standard than the Old Testament law. And then he ratchets it up and he says, you have heard the ancients say that you shall not commit murder. I tell you, if you even look upon your brethren with hate in your heart, you've already committed murder. See, God's standard is very, very high in the Old Testament. Then God's son comes along and says, it's even higher than that. It's even higher than you suppose. So the ultimate purpose of the law is to do one thing. It's to drive us to our knees and say, God, I cannot measure up. I'm not worthy. I can't reach that level. I am not good enough. Now, to put some flesh on that, Paul pulls into the scene Abraham. We have gone through 20 weeks of looking at the book of Romans, and we've never yet had an individual that we could identify with. It's been all very abstract, talking about theology. Now he brings in somebody, he puts flesh and blood on it. He uses Abraham to show us that man can be right with God. There is a way to do it, and there's only one way, and it's not by works whatsoever. So go with me to verse 1 of chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 1 says this, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Now, up to this point, chapters 1 through 3, it's been all very abstract. 
In Abraham, we get this real-life illustration of justification by faith. If you have your Bibles open, just let your eyes drift back up to verse 30. And he's already said to us, and we looked at this last week, he said very, very clearly that both Jews and Gentiles are justified by one thing. What church? What are we justified by? Faith. Okay, verse 30 makes it really, really clear. We all are. So he brings Abraham into the picture because he knows something very unique about Abraham, especially in the first century where he lives. Abraham was held up on a very, very, very high standard. Individuals looked at him as the preeminent example, as the one who was the ultimate individual who had been justified before God. The ultimate example of being justified in their mind by works. So Paul comes along, he says, I agree. I agree, Abraham is the ultimate example. He's the ultimate example of someone who has been justified. So let's examine him and see if he was examined thoroughly to know whether or not he met God's righteous standard through works or through faith. Abraham, he says, is our human forefather, the progenitor of the entire race. If you're not familiar with this, Abraham was the stem from which all of the Jewish people emanated forth. He he is the progenitor of the Hebrew people as well as the Arab nation. Both nations came from Abraham. So he says, according to the flesh, that's the physical lineage. We also know that he's the first recipient of God's covenant with the Jewish people. It was made to Abraham. But there's a double meaning going on here because Paul's been talking to the church. He's been talking to you and I about how we're justified and how we meet God's righteous standard through Jesus Christ. So obviously he can't be just referring to him for Jewish purposes. The double meaning here is that we're talking about justification and we've already established, God said, both the Jew and the Gentile are justified the same way, by faith. As a person of faith, you may not have known this, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are in the line of Abraham this morning. I'm gonna show you how you can know that. Scripture backs that up, and I'm, I'm not talking about physically in his line, but you are after the manner of Abraham. His argument in verse two is this. If Abraham is justified by works, he's got something to boast about. This guy is righteous. You find him all over the Bible. And the major idea is this. If man is justified by human effort, Abraham's got something to boast in because he would merit his own salvation. In other words, salvation would be Abraham's paycheck because this guy has worked hard. He's done everything that God has asked him to do. But Paul comes to the point in verse two where he says, but not before God. Look at verse three. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Let's make the case the way that Paul's doing it. Abraham lived 2,000 years before Paul. You lived 2,000 years after Paul. So 4,000 years ago, there's this guy walking the planet by the name of Abraham and he's got faith in God. And all the way back in the book of Genesis, we're told that he believed God and it was credited to him. So Paul's argument to start with is the salvation thing is not new. Salvation by faith is not new. It's ancient. Abraham lived 600 years before Moses, meaning before the law was ever written, before there was anything ever put in stone. Therefore, he obviously could not have been saved by a system of works. It didn't even exist. So that's why Paul quotes the book of Genesis. I want to put it on the screen for you, Genesis 15, 6. What does it say? Abraham believed God, 
And as a result, God did something. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. So very, very early in the Bible, you go back to the Genesis account and you find that Abraham was made right with God only for one reason, because of his faith. Well, we serve the same God, don't we, church? Same God yesterday, same God today, same God tomorrow. Does he ever change? God never changes. So how surprising should it be when Jesus, the Son of God, shows up on the scene and he says, you are saved, you have eternal life, salvation for eternity by believing. Not by doing, but by believing, by putting your confidence in what God says. See, Jesus is reminding us, this isn't new, this is ancient. Only because Abraham believed God and on no other basis was it reckoned to him as righteousness. So because Abraham is this man who's this model of faith, we're told in Romans 4.11, he's the father of all who believe. Now you start thinking of yourself now, right? You're in the line of Abraham in this manner, in this sense that you are believers. Back that up with Scripture again. Go on the screen with me to Galatians. Galatians 3.6, it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. Several verses later, in verse 9, he actually calls Abraham the believer. Now, when you think of people in the Old Testament, maybe this question has popped in your mind previously. Maybe think, how was Daniel actually saved? How, what about Noah and Moses? Jesus was born after those guys. How, how can they be in heaven? They never had a chance to hear about Jesus. Well, we're told specifically that they looked forward to a time they could not see. They did the same thing that you're doing today. You're looking to something that you can't see. You've never seen Jesus. You've never met him, but you believe. You've never seen heaven, but you believe. God said that the ancients looked forward to a time that they could not see, and they believed God. Hebrews chapter 11. You and I look forward to a time that we cannot see, but we believed God. So Jesus said this about Abraham in John chapter 8, verse 56. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Abraham looked forward and he rejoiced, he saw it, and he was glad. So verse 3 says, Abraham believed God. Romans chapter 4, verse 3, he believed God and it was credited to him. Now, how does that work for you? How do you know that you're saved this morning? How can you lean into that and believe that you actually have received those credits? I want to help you to understand that because this word credited is a banking term. It actually means to transfer funds. It was used in the legal world and in the banking world of the first century. So Paul leans into this exact same word. It's the second word in your Greek language this morning that you find in your notes, this logizomai. And it means not only to take an inventory, to, to investigate and estimate, but then based on what you have to make a transfer, to impute something. I can put some real flesh on this and help you to understand this because um, I've, I've been involved in transfers um, that are one way. When my son Derek was studying in Australia, in Sydney, Australia, we set up an account with the Bank of America here in the United States because the Bank of America operates globally. And you can put money into accounts here in the Bank of America and you can wire them back and forth without any fees being charged to you. 
So typically, we would get contact from Derek, and he's in Sydney, and he says, I could use a little bit of a deposit, right? And so we would wire or make a transfer from one bank account to the other, and it would arrive in Sydney, Australia. Uh, interestingly, there was never a transfer coming back my direction. <laughs> it, was, it was always one way, right? So this is the same concept that's going on here when you see this word. There's a transfer that's been made. God recognizes there's a deficit. And, and he's got a big bank account. And he can transfer something from one account to the other account. That's this word, logizomai. Now, in contrast to that is the person who works. Derek didn't have to work to get me to transfer the money. He just had to ask for it. Now, when a person works, they earn a salary. We, we get paid. If you have a job or somebody in your family is employed, they at some point receive transfers of money into their account, either through a check or electronically. It, it happens because they've done some work to earn that. At the end of a pay period, you may not get paid every day or maybe every week, but maybe once a month, the, the accounts have to be balanced out. But Scripture's been telling us that Abraham did not work for this. He did, he did one thing. He had faith. He asked God. He believed God. Well, who did the work then? If Abraham didn't do the work, who did the work, church? Yeah, completely God. Jesus did the work on the cross. God did it all. Abraham only had to trust in God's word, putting faith in what God said. So Jesus' work was transferred to Abraham's account. This is a truth that is as ancient as the book of Genesis. It's as old as mankind. God scheduled a transfer of Christ's righteousness over to my account. He did it for you if you're a believer in Jesus. God scheduled a transfer from his account over to yours. He imputed the righteousness of Jesus to us. So God is the depositor, and he signed you into his bank account, and therefore your name is recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life. I can't think of a better book for you to be written down in. That's a great account to have your name written in. So we, we find... Two more verses, and I, I, I think we've just had enough here that we could chew on this the rest of the week, right? But these two verses I want to set up for us so we can come back to them the next time we get into Romans. But verse 5 is especially cool, so I can't let you leave without seeing this. Verse 4 says this, Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. He's just making a statement. It's a, it's a, a reality. You work, you get paid. Verse 5, though. But to the one who does not work, he's not talking about people who are lazy here. He's talking about somebody that didn't have to work. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. That's how you get saved. That's the description there. If you're going to remember a verse from the Bible, if you want to memorize the greatest verse ever on justification, Romans chapter 4, verse 5. It's right there for you. That is a great verse. I want you to see it just in the form of what we've just looked at. Just three words on the screen, technically four. It's God who does it. God justifies the ungodly. Take a breath. It's like, whoa, because that's me. See, church, that's a, that's a gorgeous statement. That is a beautiful thought, because whether you thought so or not, you are ungodly. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You're made godly because of what Jesus did. But we're all sinners in need of a Savior. 
So God justifies the ungodly. Why does he justify the ungodly? Because there's no godly for him to justify. You just saw Abraham and Moses and David and Solomon and Isaiah say, I'm dirt before God. I'm a man of unclean lips. There's no one righteous on the earth. God justifies the ungodly because there's no godly for him to justify. That's why Jesus said what he did in Luke 5.32. He said this, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Those who presume that they're righteous that I'm good with God, I've got this down. Those who presume that have no part in God's work of grace because it requires something of you. To have a part in God's work of grace requires that you recognize you're ungodly to begin with, that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. And that is not as easy as you think, church, because if you've been walking with Jesus for any length of time, it may be that you've forgotten what it's like to feel like you're in need of a Savior. Somebody who's been saved two years, maybe three or four years, can remember it because it's very recent in their mind. But if you've been walking with Jesus a long time, it's not as easy as you think to confess that you're ungodly. Until a person confesses they're ungodly, they're not a candidate for salvation. Why? Because they're still trusting in their own capacity. Thinking, if I do this, if I just give enough money away, if I just do enough good things, God's going to like me. Then they're still trusting in their capacity. Yet, to the one who humbles themselves, their faith is credited as righteousness, according to verse 5. If you're new to church this morning, you're thinking, like, how can this be? Is, is it really that easy? Like, I just have to trust God? I just have to believe you're thinking, this, this sounds too good to be true. Is this possible? Well, Scripture says it is true. God's Word is true. God never lies, right, New Hope? God never lies. And God says this. Look with me on the screen, Romans 5, 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the who? The ungodly. That's us. Christ died for us. You feeling a bit ungodly this morning? Maybe you don't have a relationship with God. And you're feeling like, I got so much baggage in my life. You have no idea, Mark. You feeling that way? I got good news for you. Jesus died just for you. He did. He took it to the cross so that he could impute his righteousness to you. That's what our God did. Dr. Bruce, F.F. Bruce, was a theologian that lived quite a long time ago. And um, he was a professor at Cambridge. And I just wanted you to see his quote in, in light of this. I thought it was a really awesome statement. He said this, God who alone does great wonders created the universe from nothing, calls the dead to life, and justifies the ungodly, the greatest of all his wonders. That's a cool thought, right? Yep, God made the world. Yep, God can raise people from the dead. But the greatest thing he ever did was to justify the ungodly. And that causes you to go, I got to take a breath and really drink that in. So God justifies us, and this is important that you remember this. God justifies us not by disregarding our sin. God does not wink at sin, does he, New Hope? God doesn't do that. God doesn't disregard it and say, oh, that's okay. You just come on in anyways. That is not the God of the Bible. 
God doesn't disregard sin, but what he does with sin is he imputes it to Jesus Christ. Jesus took that sin to the cross. It's important that you leave here today getting this point clear in your head. If you have sin, if you had sin, if you will have sin in the future, that is taken to the cross by Jesus. A very ancient writing in the book of Isaiah written hundreds of years before Jesus ever died, way before crucifixion was ever invented. Isaiah wrote this about the crucifixion of Jesus. Isaiah 53.4 Surely our griefs He Himself bore and our sorrows He carried, yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken smitten of God and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Long before crucifixion was invented, scourging, whipping, crushing, the oppression, taking our sin upon him on the cross. God's crediting a believer's faith as righteousness is incomprehensible. He would do that for us. Yet, according to God's word, it is absolutely irrefutable. You can't shut it down. It's the truth of Scripture. So I'm asking you this question right now. Do you want to walk out of this building today knowing that you're right with God? Do you you want to walk out of here believing that God can give you the ability to sleep good at night? because he gave you a brand new beginning, then I ask you to do this. Trust him. Believe in him. In his word, the things that he said he would do. That's what it means to believe, to put your trust in God. And all that mess of your past is gone. Complete forgiveness. Jesus said, I will separate your sins as far as the east from the west. That's true of our God. God said that about himself. I remember your sins no more. It's not as though they're sitting in a closet waiting for him to drag them back out and saying, shame on you. Look at this list. God says if you're forgiven, you're forgiven completely in Jesus Christ. Right, church? You're forgiven completely. That's that's a great promise. It's gone. Who could do that but Jesus Christ? No one. All because of what Jesus did. And if you think that goes beyond your imagination, that you just can't even think, it boggles the mind that he could do that for you, I'm going to ask you to do something. We typically close in prayer in a service, but I'm going to lean back into something they did when I was a kid in church. They, they did what they called a benediction. Okay? I'm going to ask you to stand where you're at, and I'm going to read to you a verse from Scripture that will remind you that God can do this. So how about if you stand right where you're at if you're able to do that? Here's the second part of it. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and listen to what God himself said in his holy word about what he can do. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that we ask or imagine, according to the power that works within us, To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever and ever and ever. And all of God's people said, amen. Those are great truths. Have a great week, New Hope.